One other announcement. Pastor James, welcome all of you that are first-timers here. You? Yes? Welcome. It's good to have you here. All right. Um, the people that are going to the rescue mission next Saturday, we're going to take uh, a group of people to the rescue mission to help feed uh, those that are there. Um, we're going to disregard anything you learned before. You're going to meet here at 945 on Saturday. And uh, then we're going to leave in time to be over there at 1030 because instead of one feeding, there'll be two. Uh, so there'll be one at 11 and one at 12. So we need you all to know that. And right after the service, uh, those of you that are signed up to go, and even if you haven't signed up but you want to go, uh, there'll be a short meeting with Pastor Joe and Danny Meir. They're going to be in the corner over there by, by the office door. So if, if you are uh, going to go next week, just a few minutes, uh, they'll be meeting with you uh, about, uh, about that outreach. Okay? Very good. All right. I think we got all of the housekeeping out of the way. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 in our Bibles, please. We have been spending a lot of time in the book of Genesis over the last two years because of the critical nature of the truth that is being attacked by the world and even by the liberal uh, wing of Christendom, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is not uh, really true. It's just stories to encourage and whatnot. Legend, some people call it. Uh, but uh, we consider it to be true. From Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way through the last chapter of the book of Genesis. We have uh, arrived to Genesis chapter 11, dealing with the city of Babel and the tower that is built in that city, or was built in that city. We spent some time in this uh, particular section uh, in an introduction last time, so uh, we continue on. There may be some things that uh, you may need to fill gaps with. If you're interested in this, uh, you can sign up to get the CD of last week's uh, study. But I want to read verses 1 through 9 once again, because this is going to be our text. And um, I do have to confess, uh, I, I told uh, First Service that I had about 12 more pages of information, but I'll just give it to Second Service. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll be here for hours if we did that. Uh, so, no, I'm going to be generous and kind with you all, too. Uh, but we're going to try to cover as much of this passage as we can to gain the, tr the true understanding of, of what happened then and how it applies to us now, because we are looking now at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to be ready for that. And we're living in days that mirror what was taking place then. So that is why this is important. Verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. 
And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. And therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Shall we pray? Father, once again, we come to your throne of grace to ask that you would anoint us and bless us with your Holy Spirit, to bless us with your wisdom and understanding. And then, Lord God, that we may take and apply, Lord, the the passages that certainly connect us to what we are reading here and studying today, that connect us, Lord God, not so much by time, but by the attitude of men's hearts. And, and, and the times in which we live, Lord God, you've given us so much uh, to know about what is to come. And therefore, even this in Genesis is, is something pointing to a, a time that is to come where the very same attitude and the very same heart are going to be seen. So prepare us for that, Lord, as we study your word today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we aim to close out the first major section of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, and prepare to enter into chapter 12, as we will in January, we find ourselves at a most important turning point in God's dealings with mankind. Because, you see, up to this point, we have dealt with a history of the Adamic race. In other words, the race of Adam. Where there was neither Jew nor Gentile. And if anything, man was one in Adam, which means that mankind was made up of entirely of sinners. If man had anything in common then, as even with us now, it is that they were born in sin because of Adam. But there weren't those national distinctions. There wasn't the race of the Hebrews yet. There weren't the Gentile nations as of yet. But there was the problem of sin. And so the Lord God had promised a solution to the the problems of man's sin. And that was, of course, the seed of the woman, which is Genesis 3.15, where God actually spoke to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve into eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he prophesies of the seed of the woman who was to come and to crush the head of that serpent there would be then the solution for man's sin. And so from the vast overflowing river of man, the the Lord would fashion a small but significant stream through the call of Abram or Abraham to the establishment of the nation of Israel to eventually bringing forth the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. And this chosen nation was to be the witness of the Creator God to the whole earth. This is one of the main reasons for the nation of Israel. 
As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, a passage that we always begin to read uh, in our, in our uh, children's dedications here, it is what is called in, his, in, in Hebrew the Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echod. It is, O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That is really the, the, the first and primary witness that is given to the, to the Hebrew nation, to the Israelites, to be the witness to this one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That calling is clarified for us in Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12, when God says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and have showed, when there was no stranger, uh, strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. And what's significant about that is, of course, we're going to see that confirmed for us in the last section of Genesis 11, which we will study next time. But, but now that, that phrase there in verse 12, when there was no strange God among you, God was saving, God was showing. When there was no strange God among you. That was before man had gone so, so far from God that they no longer acknowledged God. But now strange gods would be appearing in the minds and hearts of man as they grew further and further and further away from the true God who created them and commanded them, actually, to go forth and to multiply and replenish the earth. This was something given to Adam. It was something given to Noah. It was a commandment. Go forth, let your family spread out into all of the earth, and then replenish the whole earth with your children who are to be created in my image as God had said. And as the people scattered, and they scattered out from Ararat, where the ark had, had landed, and, uh, you know, the ark of Noah from there, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, began to take their families, and they began to grow, and they began to spread out. There was, even after that, a, a more decisively rebellious attitude by man to be resistant to God's command. Now we saw what happened before the flood. God had created Adam and Eve. They fell in sin, but they, they had, uh, after uh, Cain had uh, killed Abel, of course they had Seth. From Seth was that line that was to lead to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to, to Jesus. So there was that line uh, that was to bring forth the, the Messiah, the seed of the woman. But uh, they were supposed to go out and they were supposed to spread out into all of the earth. But after they reached Shinar, this plain, the plains of Shinar, and by the way, let me just mention that the plains of Shinar are actually at about sea level or below, but it gives you an understanding of something that we're going to come to a little later. But after reaching Shinar, the area of Babylon in what is now modern day Iraq, the people settled down and they began to establish a new civilization and society. The problem was, that they decided to settle down in opposition to God's command to keep going and scattering over the face of the earth. So as we've already stated, Nimrod, we met him a couple of weeks ago and we were studying chapter 10. Nimrod, whose name means let's rebel, was a hunter of men. 
not so much a hunter of game, of animals or whatever. He was a hunter of man, a warring tyrant who fought and killed to ruthlessly rule a kingdom of his own in the Euphrates Valley. That was where the plains of Shinar were. He had ruthlessly killed. We could say that because we noticed in our study there of chapter 10 that he had overtaken a, a portion of land that was, that was settled by one of the sons of Shem. And he overtook them and began to rule and reign in what is known as Nineveh. But he had these consolidated city-states that were made up of Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalnan, Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, and Rezin. And while those were in two regions, they were city-states, but yet the whole of the eight cities were really just one city. And these city-states made up that one great city that would be known as Babel or Babylon. But it wasn't great as Jerusalem was great because it is God's city. No, it was great. Nimrod's city was great in its, in its defiance against God. That's what it was great about. Its defiance, its rebellion and rejection of God. And this was man's city, see. It was man's city. It was a secular city. It was a humanistic city. It would have had its religious identifications, but nonetheless, it was a city of man, by man, and for man's glory. That's what we discover about Nimrod and the city that he built called Babel, which eventually would become Babylon. And as we take a general look at the text, we can certainly say that the building of Babel and its tower was intended to signify and to promote the unity of the race, the race of man. And there was to this desire to be one world. There was a desire to be one world. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard that statement, one world, one world people, one world government, even one world religion. It's being talked about. Uh, one of our uh, members in the, in the first service handed me a Wall Street Journal and put a bunch of little markers in it to say, look at all of these articles in here that all refer to this one world government or, you know, the desire for a one world government today. And so the world's first federation of nations in actuality epitomized the last. For as I stated last time, human history begins and ends at Babel. We talked about the two cities. There was a city called Babel in, in Genesis. There's a city called Babylon in, in, in Revelation. And all throughout the scriptures, there's a Babylon. There is the other city, of course, the city whose foundations and maker is God. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And these two cities contrast each other throughout all of the scriptures. But I just find it interesting where we are today with this idea of a one world philosophy or a one world government or a one world religion. I want to show you a few uh, pictures. The first one is uh, really a picture of the 16th century artist. And I can't remember his name. I should have written it down, but could have pronounced it anyway. So I figured, well, it's all right. The artwork's more important. But there it is. I mean, that's, that's a 16th century rendition of, of the Tower of Babel. 
And when you look at some of the other artist renditions of this same tower, they all look fairly similar. And there's a reason for that. They look fairly similar because this, is, this was a kind of a structure that was actually very prominent in, in, in the area of the Middle East and, and, and those areas that we are talking about because they had what was called ziggurats. And these ziggurats were all formed in a very similar way, similar fashions, like a stairway that was kind of spiraling in, in, in an upwardly direction. And so that's why uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, any artist renditions always look like that. Well, you know, God actually comes down. Of course, we know this from the text that God comes down, you know, to scatter the people because they just, you know, they, they, they had this attitude uh, against God. So it wasn't a good thing that this, this tower was built. And we're going to learn about that right now. But the second picture, I want you to look at the second picture because the second picture is a modern uh, uh, building, uh, which is actually the European Parliament in Strasbourg, France. This particular building was modeled after the Tower of Babel. Back a few years ago when the European uh, nations were wanting to join together and become kind of like a United States of Europe, uh, and, and they began to meet and, and gather together uh, in various locations, Brussels and eventually Strasbourg and other, and other places. They, 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 had a, they had to build some symbols up. And so they had a poster. This was a few years ago. But I think back in the 80s. I remember seeing it back then. But they had a poster of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of promoting the European uh, common market and all. And they had a picture of the Tower of Babel, kind of like dr- uh, drawn as a, almost... A, like a caricature in a sense, but, but it, you know, the people were, it was building, it was a modern structure, but it looked like the Tower of Babel. And, you know, it had the cranes and it had the scaffoldings and all of that. And they're just saying, you know, we're building Europe into this one nation, you know. Well, this particular building is, you'll notice, modeled very similar to the Tower of Babel. But the Tower of Babel was not a good thing because it was done in opposition to God. Yet they have chosen to use it because it doesn't matter about God, does it? Look at a stamp that is used for the European Parliament. There's another symbol there. It's a woman riding a beast. Sound familiar? I mentioned this, I think, last week in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, of a woman riding a beast. And this was the, 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 the most decent picture I could give you all. There were a few others, but I would have, you know, I've had to ask the, you know, the, everybody to close their eyes. Then you wouldn't have seen it, what the use, use in it. Amazing, amazing images that others have come up with these things. I it was just couldn't use it. But this, this was enough for me to say, look, they've taken a symbol from the Bible, but it's not a good one because it is, uh, it is the symbol of Babylon. The symbol of Babylon for the European Parliament. By the way, there is, I believe it's, it's in front of either the Strasbourg building that we saw or the one in Brussels, but one of those places they do have a sculpture of a woman riding a beast in front of the building. It is saying this is, this is our symbol. But it's from the Bible, but yet it's a symbol that uh, defies God. That's crazy. But that's the world saying, we don't need God. 
We don't need the Lord telling us what to do. We can do it ourselves. These all become symbols of man's accomplishments, leaving God out. These images remind us that when it comes to rebelling against God, nothing changes. From Genesis to Revelation, Satan's great rebellion against the seed of the woman continues. From that very time forward, Satan has tried to destroy the seed of the woman. He's come awfully close sometimes. But God is stronger. God is more faithful. God is is more powerful. He is more knowledgeable. And Satan can't do anything because Satan Satan isn't a creator. He's just a created being. And God is in control of all things. So as there was a great rebel standing between or behind the first Babel, which is Nimrod, so there will be a great rebel standing behind the last one, we know as the Antichrist. But as the first United Nations organization led by Nimrod centered everything in a cultural and political and religious unity, so will the last. So will the last. And here in in Genesis is man's first attempt to build a society from which the Creator God was to be excluded. But God refuses to be ruled out of human affairs. God refuses to be ruled out of human affairs. You know, years ago, even in our own country, we we know that if we study the the founding of, of the United States, uh, there were, there were men who called themselves deists. They believed that there was a God, but uh, this particular God created things, and, and he kind of like wound it up, uh, you know, his creation, and he just put it on the table, and he said, okay, we'll just let it run down, whatever. And God just kind of, uh, you know, takes himself out of the picture. Yeah, there's a God, but he's not in control of everything. Well, no, the Bible tells us there's a God, and he's in control of everything. You see. So, you know, to, to think that, that God just wants to be outside of human affairs, it's, it's not so. God refuses to be ruled out of human affairs, and so he would come down in judgment upon that scene on the plains of Shinar. Now, today we're going to deal with the materials for building the tower. Verse 3, let's look at that. Uh, they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly or throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. Now, why is all this important? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, take note of something. Take note that Nimrod did just what every great leader has to do. He challenged the people to follow him. He challenged the people to follow him. The the, the problem with Nimrod's challenge was that, that he was a godless tyrant, and he was a godless dictator. But nonetheless, he had to challenge the people to do this. And he had to use force in many cases. How many tyrants and dictators have we seen down through history that have done this with the people to the point of brainwashing them to follow, you know, to just blindly sometimes the things of, of a certain kind of government? Uh, we, we could look at that at, in, in Nazi Germany back in the 30s. And what happened with Hitler? And, and this, was what, uh, this was what Nimrod had to do. He had to convince the people in some way. Listen, we're going to build our own society. We're going to have our own people. Uh, you know, we're, we're, going to, we're going to be in charge of things. What they were saying in essence was, we're going to do it, but, not, but we're going to do it without God. 
So the people were, were excited, and they were very excited about the building project, and they gave their wholehearted support, because we see in the text it says, go to, let us make brick. And they said, okay, let's do it. And they got behind the project, and they started making the bricks. But there was a problem with that. Because you see, when God does anything, when God builds anything, He always uses stone. He doesn't use brick. This is the first indication that this city was going to be built by man, man's way, with man's ideas, with man's technologies, with man's inventiveness, as it were, in man's creativity, but with God out of the picture. God builds with stone, and he does so because he made the stone. How many times have we seen God say in the scriptures to tell people to go and build a, a memorial or to build uh, something? And he says, take stone and don't put, any, don't put any chisel to it. Take stone. Why? Because God made it. He says, you take that stone, you build a monument to remember what I've done. How about what God did in building the church? Look at, the, look at the example that he gives us in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. Peter says, To whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And notice verse 5, You also as lively stones. What's that? A lively stone is a living stone. So he says, You also as living stones, <coughs> excuse me, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Of course, that being Jesus. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. A chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. But unto them which is disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Well, a lot of words to say, you know, that God builds with stone. When he made his church, he made us living stones. Because the same concept continues on from the very beginning. God always builds with stone. The Jewish people were told to build the city of Jerusalem with stone. And if you go with us a year from tomorrow, because a year from tomorrow we're going to go to, Jer- we're going to, go to Israel, and you'll see all those places where God said build with stone. And they did. And sometimes those stones were awfully big. Especially there around the temple. And around the city of Jerusalem. They said, build with stone. Because I made the stone. It's to remind you that I'm in control. I'm in charge. The coming world kingdom of Christ is depicted as one made of stone. The the coming kingdom of Jesus. I mean, the the second coming of Jesus and uh, and his taking uh, the the the, the, uh, the throne in Jerusalem. And ruling and ruling and reigning for a thousand years on this earth. In Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel is interpreting the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands. That's actually about Jesus. It says, Which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was, was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, that stone, though, made without hands because it wasn't man who created, you know, this stone. It was God. But in fact, it was the uncreated Jesus because Jesus is the creator. Nonetheless, he was the one that came and he's the one that destroys 
all of man's kingdoms. Because in verses 44 and 45, Daniel goes on and says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. That is Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. God builds with stone. God uses stone. What does man use? When man devises, he makes his own. Man uses brick. Brick simply is hardened clay, which is a fitting symbol for mankind. Hardened clay. In other words, the ancient world empire of Babylon Babel and Babylon was humanistic. That's what the symbolism is representing here. Humanistic. <laughs> you see, when God does something, he always uses what he has made. When man does something, he always tries to form something that might be close to the image of, of God's things, but, but it's, it's still made by man. Take, for instance, when, when David, was, when, when David was, was, was anointed king by Samuel. Samuel went to Jesse's house to, to look at the sons of David because God told him out of this particular house is going to come the next king of Israel. And all of the sons of David parade in front of Samuel, but Samuel picks none of them. He says, none of them are the right one. You have any other sons? Yes, there's David. He's out in the field with the sheep. Well, bring in that shepherd because I need to look at him. And he comes in and all of a sudden he knows. He, immediately he knows. This is the one. And when Samuel anoints David there to be the next king, Samuel uses a ram's horn, a horn of oil, a ram's horn filled with oil, and he anointed David. The ram's horn was made by God. Go back a few years when Saul was king. God told Samuel, listen, the people want want their own king. I'm supposed to be their king, but they want a king, so let's give them a king. They wanted a big king, so they got a big man like Saul who was heads over everybody else. He was probably a very handsome man. Probably all the good looks, charismatic, whatever. But when when Samuel anointed Saul, it says that he anointed him with a flask of oil. And a flask is made by man's hands. And it was symbolic that this king was only a king because the people wanted him, but not God. You see, when God builds, he builds with stone. When man builds, he builds with brick. And you know, whatever man makes, nothing really lasting can be made out of hardened clay and slime. All human things are found to be faulty and frail. In their rebellion, man developed a whole new technology and a new industry. They, they learned how to kiln fire brick. We still make bricks the same way today. We form it out of all of this mud and, and, and whatever, and then we put it into these kilns, and, and the kilns fire up, and the, the heat hardens them. And then we put those bricks one on top of another with some kind of cement or, or filler and putty. Will it last? Lasts for a while. 
Some houses are built better than others. As a matter of fact, most of us who've lived in El Paso most of our lives know that in the older parts of town, sometimes those houses are better built than some of the newer sections of town because of the materials that are used. But we could talk about that for hours on end. They also learn how to use a naturally occurring pitch called asphalt or bitumen as cement. And they use this petroleum-based product which contained both animal and vegetable substances and it was essentially the same sealing agent used to waterproof the Ark of Noah which brings to mind the question as to whether the tower was man's Ark. The Ark of Noah was an Ark built for safety, for protection through the storms that were coming because of all the rains that were going to flood the earth. Was the tower just a way of saying, you know, we don't need God's ark we have our own we'll build it but then they waterproofed it i wonder if they were worried if there was another flood coming because of their disobedience something to think about so you know man can be creative and inventive in their rebellion and backsliding man can be creative in these things you know it's a good thing that we today in in the church and, and you know there's a lot of you know god has raised up some tremendously intelligent people in the church too in the in the body of christ but a lot of the, th- the technologies that we use today, I mean, they, they may have been invented by some Christians. Others may not have been. Others may have been very anti-Christ. Nonetheless, take, for example, Steve Jobs, who you know, died recently. You know, Apple and, you know, the iPad, iPod, i yeah, yeah, all just kinds of all <laughs> kinds of stuff that he, you know, created, you know, with, with, his, with his mind. You know, I mean, he, he had all these ideas. And, you know, but he was a Buddhist, and, he, you know, he never, he didn't know God. He didn't know the Lord. And all of these things. But yet, you know, how many people use this technology today? And I, ho- I would hope that we would take those, th- those things that man has made, you know, actually for themselves and use it now for the glory of God. We can. Nothing wrong with that. But the, but the Tower of Babel was not used for the glory of God. It was used for the glory of man. And the beautiful city and its tower were held together by decomposed slime. Isn't that fitting? Fitting for a rebellious city? It was highly combustible. I think God had an idea or a plan with that to destroy the things that man tries to make in opposition to him. But again, that, you know, these cities and, and these towers and all that man makes, I mean, what a contrast to the precious stones of the heavenly city. Because in Revelation 21, verses 18 through 21, it says that the building of the wall, and this is in heaven, this is the new Jerusalem, this is the city of God. The building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, uh, the second sapphire, the third a, a chalcedony, the fourth uh, an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth chrysoprasis, the eleventh adjacent, the twelfth an amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Which have always made me wonder how big those oysters were, you know. <laughs> twelve pearls, each one was a gate, every several gate of one pearl, and the city of, the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. I mean, let's face it, there is truly no comparison between builders. God is the master builder. Man can't do anything that God can do. Man can't even come close to what God can do. But man sure tries. So those were the materials, but you know the method for building the tower is even more significant. 
In verse 4 it tells us, they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now they were to have a political union symbolized by the city and they were to also have a religious unity symbolized by the tower. You know, the phrase, whose top may reach unto the heavens, has an interesting meaning in the Hebrew. Because the idea is better stated, let us build a tower and its top with the heavens. Let us build a tower and its top with the heavens. It wasn't that they were building a tower so tall to reach heaven. This is the reason I said that, you know, here they were in the plains of Shinar. If they were really trying to build a tower to heaven, they would have found the highest place that they could. So let's build on that mountain, because it's a lot closer to God that way, or the heavens that way, than building on the plains of Shinar. But they, they built in the plains, because it wasn't a matter of reaching God. That wasn't the point of all of this. They wanted to build a tower topped by the heavens. It was to be their religious temple. It was to be their way of honoring their own gods. God wasn't in their thoughts at all. The God who created the heavens and the earth wasn't in their thoughts at all. Occultic stargazing was. I mentioned the 12 pages that I'm not even going to be close to getting to today. Listen, there are a lot of things that actually teach us to look at this beginning of Babel as the beginning of all false religions, especially those of occultic nature. And this was to be the feature of their religious system. It is significant that most astrological and occultic practices have a history reaching all the way back to Babylon and Babylon. So consider also that there, there is no mention of God in this text, is there? When we just read about the building of the tower, no mention of God whatsoever. There's no mention of God in the people's plans. Look for that today in our own society. Look for that today in our own culture. What's happened to the United States of America where in 1960 we decided it's time to tell kids you can't pray in school anymore? Or you can't bring a Bible to school anymore? Or we can't talk about God anymore? What has happened to this country that was founded on the principles of the Scriptures? We're just saying, look, it's, it, it's, those things aren't important anymore. What's important is, you know, man. Man's accomplishments, man's achievements, man's glory. You know, as much as all of us may like the Olympics, you know that the Olympics is all about man's glory. That's it. That's that's what it's all about. It's all about the glory of man. They mention God not whatsoever in their plans. No mention whatsoever of the only living and true God. No mention of the sovereign Lord and majesty of the universe. No mention of the creator and the sustainer of all things. Not mentioned here. We don't want God. As a religious center, though, they want religion. The tower was in the form of a ziggurat, as I mentioned earlier. A staircase or a stairway. Stairway to heaven? No, 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 yeah. Every guitar player's dream, oh, stairway to heaven. Yeah, but you know, if you take the record and you turn it backwards, it got messages from Satan, okay, so. Remember that? How many of you remember that? I just want to see all the old people with me, okay. All right. 
It was a staircase or a stairway, not so much to heaven, but a temple to worship the starry hosts of heaven. That's what they wanted it for. What were the ancient religions all about? What was the religion of Egypt? The worship of Ra, the sun god. How is it that in Egypt they're worshiping the sun god, and others were worshiping stars, and others the planets, and and, and some the moon? And how did all of that get to the United States, or at least to the continents of the Americas, before the Americas were discovered? And the natives of that particular time were, cre- were, were, were worshiping the very same thing. The sun, the moon, the stars. It, it should be regarded as having a religious goal, and that is the tower, because the scriptures trace all false religions again to Babylon, and this is the only element in the description of early Babylon that can have this meaning. We would expect something like this from the nature of Babylon and its culture and from what is told us of all cultures that turn away from God. When God scattered the peoples, they were to be scattered to replenish the earth, but they were also scattered so that they could take the knowledge of God to every culture and to every place that they were going to be settling. But the people who were in the plains of Shinar, they got there and they said, this is enough, we're not going anywhere. But even then, the ones that did go somewhere, they forgot about God. As we studied before. Paul in the book of Romans tells us that when people reject the knowledge of God, they inevitably turn to false gods. Romans 1 verses uh, 22 and 23. Paul writes, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So not only were people then worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets, but eventually they started worshiping everything that was around them. They began to worship the trees and they began to worship the rocks. They began to worship fire and, you know, and heat and cold and water and, and everything. It was the beginnings, you see, of, of, of this, this, under, this, this thought that is pervading even our philosophies and, and religious ideals today. That God is in everything, so everything can be worshipped. Like you can worship that chair that you're sitting on. What good would that chair be if it just all of a sudden collapsed underneath you? Then you wouldn't worship it, see? But you're not worshipping it, you're just using it. Not that God is in every molecule there. God is above his creation. That's what the Bible teaches us. But when we start saying, oh, God is in this and God is in that, then, then what we're saying, we're creating a religion. And that's exactly what they were doing. They began to worship everything. The citizens of Babylon had rejected the knowledge of the true God, and so we should expect the creation of a false religion as part of their dubious cultural achievements. Again, the scriptures speak of mystery Babylon, but that is of the reality symbolized by the earthly city, saying that it is, as it says in Revelation 17, verse 5, mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And by the way, an abomination is something God hates. So go back to the image of the, uh, you know, the, the building in Strasbourg and, and the stamp of the European Parliament, and you think, those are images that God hates. But they've decided to take them and say, this is what we're going to build on. These are, these are our symbols. 
Henry Morris states this. He says, The essential identity of the various gods and goddesses of Rome, Greece, India, Egypt, and other nations with the original pantheon of the Babylonians is well established. In fact, Nimrod himself was apparently later deified as the chief god of Babylon. And he was called Marduk or Merodach, which is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, the god of Babylon. They made Nimrod the god of Babylon. He was just a man. But he became a god to them. And from the very stars and constellations which the Lord had placed in the heavens to give us the story of his purposes for mankind. Did you know that the constellations that God put into the, in the sky, made up of the stars, that that was the story of the gospel? The gospel is in the stars. God intended it that way. But what does man do? He takes the constellations and he creates for himself astrology. He took the signs of the zodiac, which were, of course, the constellations. The signs of the zodiac. And out of that, they began those, the religions of divination and, and uh, uh, necromancy, which is seeking to hear from the dead and, and uh, you know, knowing, seeking to know the future through the stars and, and all of that. When somebody asked me, do you, you know, what's your sign? I say the cross, an empty tomb. What sign do you want? We're living in the times of the signs, and the signs of the times are all around us for the coming of Jesus. Which sign do you want? But I don't have a sign. I have Jesus. I don't need a sign. You, you understand? You see... We have to get all these things out of our mind, you know. We, people, people look at tarot cards and they say, you know, we can divine the future. Really? According to whom? The devil? Satan? Familiar spirits? You know, if you have a Ouija board at your house, would you burn it? Would you get rid of it? That's a, that's a symbol of Satan. That's a tool of the enemy. I don't care that it, it's made by Milton Bradley or whoever it is that you know, makes all the other kids toys. I don't know. You need a check. But if you have one, get rid of it. Why? Because it belongs to the Satan, not to God. And you need to clean your house out of those ungodly things. Because this is what it's telling us. And by the way, the Lord gave strict warnings in his word against astrology. Leviticus 19, verse 13, he says, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. The wizards and the familiar spirits, all of that had to do with the astrological symbols. Deuteronomy 18 makes it even more clear. Nine, uh, verses 9 through 12. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. You know, that was the worship of Molech. Where they would have to actually offer their children unto the fires of Molech. And he goes on and he says, um, Where am I? Help, help. There shall but not be found any among you. Verse 10. There you go. There shall not be found any among you that, that maketh one of his son or daughter pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. 
For all that do these things are are an abomination unto the Lord. Do you notice that it says all that do these things are an abomination? Not only are the things that are done an abomination, but those who do them are an abomination to God. Because of these abominations, the Lord thy God does drive them out from before thee. That's why I'm saying get rid of anything that doesn't belong to God as far as those kinds of things are concerned. You don't need them. What you need is God and what you need is Christ and what you need is God's word in your home. Again, the whole thing looks ahead to the last world empire, which will bear many of the same hallmarks. Don't have time to get into that. Remember the 12 pages? If you want to, we'll be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon. But let's look at the motive now, because there is a motive. The motive for building the towers in verse 4 also, in the second part of verse 4, it says, Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. I talked a little bit about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But the whole idea was to glorify mankind and to bind men together in a permanent union in defiance of God's order and God's will. They wanted to leave God out of their search for security and unity. They wanted to discover their own potential in civic, political, and religious societies apart from the one who gave them life and reason. They wanted to establish their own system and means of expressing what would be considered love without embracing the love only God can give and which He was ready to pour out upon them if they would only turn back to Him. And I can tell you this, that the love of the world is very different from the love of God. There may be some similarities, but the love of the world is not the same as the love of God. But what does man want today? He wants to have God on his own terms. That's not love. He wants God to be a puppet for him. That's not love. That just shows the selfishness of man's heart. They were essentially saying no to God in their motive to want to have a name for themselves. God wanted them to have his name. They wanted a name for themselves. Their mistake in building the tower. Let's read verses 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. God does not want to be left out of the affairs of men. He came down. He wasn't invited, but he doesn't have to be, you see, because he's God. And he came down and he said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. It's an interesting thing that after Adam and Eve fell in the garden and and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the Godhead spoke amongst itself to say, we have to block man's passage to the tree of life. Because now that they had eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of of good and evil, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Number one, they were already beginning to die uh, physically, but they, are, they had died spiritually. 
Therefore, if they had taken of the fruit of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in the state of sin. And God did not want that for man. So they conversed about what they had to do for man, the Godhead, the one God in three persons. And they blocked man's passage to the tree of life. Eventually, of course, the tree is taken out. It's in heaven. But that life came to us in Jesus. He is our tree of life. And he came to die for our sins and to pay the ultimate cost. He died for us, you see. And so God said, go to, let us go down. And there confound their language. That they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Now, now what's interesting here is that, you know, God had commanded them to scatter. God had commanded them to go, and had they gone and done what he had asked them to do, what he had told them to do, actually not asked, but he told them to do, if they had done that, he would have blessed them. Instead, now God comes down and he says, okay, my will's still going to be done. You're going to be scattered, but I'm going to scatter you, and now you're not going to be blessed, you're going to be cursed. So it's so much better for us to do as God commands us to do immediately, rather than to you know, stick around and try to do it our own way. Because it didn't, this was not a blessing. He came to judge them. And, and therefore is the name of it called Babel. Remember we studied Babel, which, which means the gate of God. But Babel, it became Babel, which means confusion. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. They reckoned without God. This is what they did. I'm going to just kind of close this up here in just a moment. They reckoned without God. What does that mean? Well, in other words, they considered, they imagined, they supposed, they deemed, they felt, and they surmised about life and their future without God's wisdom and without wanting His presence. That's what it means to reckon without God. They imagined life without God. See, you have to imagine it because, you know, God is God and He's all present and all knowing and all powerful. But you have to turn your back completely and say, I don't, I, you know. John Lennon's a good example and he wrote the, the, the song Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. Eventually he'd say, imagine there's no hell. Well, no, you have to imagine it. If you have to imagine it, then you know it exists. You just don't want it. You want there to be this one world idea of society. We're all just going to be nice and, 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 and loving to one another. We're just going to come whatever way. As we said last week, maybe by just drinking Coca-Cola, we'll all do that. And sing songs, you know, we are the world, whatever doesn't happen. There's hatred in this world. That's because of man's sin. Jesus came to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus came to bring life because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus came to die for those sins so that we who believe will be alive again. But we cannot reckon without God. 
The Lord nevertheless descended on the scene of ju- in judgment, and that was their mistake. They had ruled God out of their thinking, and so imagine that they had rid themselves of him, only to find at last that his answer to such foolishness was swift and lasting judgment. The Lord expects us to remember him at every turn. At every turn of life, the Lord wants us to remember him. It is to be our desire to remember him and to acknowledge him in all things. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 3, verse 6 says, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We need to acknowledge God in everything we do. Let's not be like those who say they're Christians, but don't show the fruit of it. There are a lot of people who say they believe in God, but they don't trust in God, and therefore they are practical atheists. They're just practicing atheism. They don't know it, but that's what they are. They're they're practicing and living life as if God doesn't exist. But God does exist. And He exists in everything that you do. Wherever you go, He's there. As a matter of fact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Wherever you go, I'll be there. Which means there's no place that you can go without God. So you can't hide from Him. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, you can't just turn the lights off and think that He can see you. He sees you. You can't get away from Him because not only is He around you, but He says, I'm in you. I'm with you. I've given you my Spirit. Where are you going to go from me? Read Psalm 139. Where can you go from His Spirit? You can't get away from Him. So you have to completely reject Him. You have to completely rebel against Him. You have to completely defy Him, just as they did in the plains of Shinar. We are to acknowledge Him. God is going to bring judgment upon the nations. And then we're going to come back to the way it was before, where there was only one language. And that language was with the purpose of praising God. Let me read that to you, and I'll close with this. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour, out, to pour upon them my indignation. Why? First of all, because they've defied God, they've resisted God, and they have sought to destroy their people, or his people, Israel. But then he says, even all my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent or with one accord. You see, there will be one language again. Just like it was in the beginning. There was in the garden the language between man and God and God and man. A language of love, a language of hope, a language of peace. But it is a language by which we will honor and worship and glorify God forever and ever. Let's remember God. Let's remember the cross. Let's remember Jesus. Let's remember the empty tomb. Let's acknowledge Him in all the things we do. Let's pray. Father, thank You.